Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to see you today. As you can see from this roll-in and what Elliot said, we are this summer considering the themes and the major events of God's epic story that are found in the pages of the Bible. We really encourage you to, over time, read through all of the Bible, but we're taking 10 weeks to kind of give you an overview of the major themes that are found in God's epic story. We began several weeks ago this series by looking, first of all, at why it is that we are drawn to epic stories in the first place. And the reason is because, quite simply, we want to live epic lives. Now, most people try to build a personal story with their own lives that's large enough to be considered epic. But if you try that, you'll find out, first of all, it's hard to pull that off. And secondly, even if you build an epic life that's considered epic by history proportions, it's, it's still not big enough. And that's because we were created to be a part of an epic story that is larger than any one of us, and that is God's story. And so we began by looking at this epic story, God's epic story, with the opening scene in the Bible, the scene of creation. And we talked about how when, when you look out at this world and this universe, uh, it doesn't take very much observation to discover how, how beautiful things are. And it doesn't have to be as beautiful as it is to function. And the question is why? And the answer is it reflects God's goodness. The beauty reflects His goodness. And then we looked at One of the most unique aspects of all of creation, that is us, humankind. There's a lot of similarities between us and the rest of the animal kingdom, but there's tremendous difference. And when you look at us, you you discover that we were created for relationship. And this points to the fact that at the very core of who God is, He is loving. He created us with both the need for and the capacity to love and build relationships. But if God is so good and He is so loving, then why is it that we now look out on a world that is full of so much pain and so much evil? The answer is because sin entered into this world and things began to fall apart. This was the second part of the epic story that we looked at a couple weeks ago. Now, as we look out on this world and really as we live our own lives, look at our lives, we, we are a mixture of both good and bad, noble and evil in this world. But rather than abandon this world to its decline now, God chose a people to be the foundation for which he would do his work in this world. This is what uh, we talked about last week. He chose Abraham, the father of this new people. Today, we now turn our attention to the rescue. It's the story of how God rescued his people, his chosen people, from slavery in Egypt. But like all of the themes of God's epic story. They're not limited to just the moment in history in which those events took place. The themes are still operating and still apply to our lives now 3,200 years later from what the story is that we're going to look at today. The main character of this story today is Moses. Moses was a descendant of Abraham and all of the descendants of Abraham, about 70 of them when they first uh, migrated, they migrated to Egypt to survive a famine that had occurred. And Over time, Pharaoh enslaved them to build the monuments of his empire. This was the practice of Pharaoh, and they became slaves. And they were in Egypt for a total of 430 years. And I'm sure it must have been confusing for them at different times as they remembered and repeated probably the promise that God had made to Abraham. The promise is found in Genesis 12, 2 through 3, and it reads like this. God said to Abraham, I'll make you into a great nation. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Now, if I was one of God's people, 
living in slavery in Egypt, I would probably be thinking, you know, if, if this is the blessing train, let me get off at the next stop. This, this does not feel like much of a blessing to me. And this really is one of the questions and struggles that we have in life. If, if we decide to become part of God's people, our life doesn't just suddenly become amazingly great. There really is some difference that occurs, but again and again, we find ourselves in struggle. Now, we're not in physical bondage right now like they were, but we are enslaved to a certain set of circumstances that we just can't change. And we, like them, we may cry out for help, and like them, we often are met with silence and things don't really change. And the question we struggle with, like they probably did, is why? Where, where is God in this? And the, the problem is this. We, we are expecting, in general, a much smaller rescue than God is planning. God's rescue of Israel from Egypt is the template of the kind of rescuing that God still does today. And so this morning, as I tell this story, I want to look at two of the most surprising aspects about this story, the rescue story. The first is that God's rescue is bigger than us. It's bigger than just us. Now Moses, like the rest of the Jewish babies, was born into slavery. And he was born at a time when Pharaoh had grown concerned about the the multiplying Jewish population. They had arrived in Egypt as about a number of about 70. And by the time they left, 430 30 years later, they were somewhere between two and three and a half million. So they had been multiplying. And Pharaoh was concerned as they got larger and stronger that they were a threat to him. So that's, first of all, why he enslaved them in part, because of the tremendous labor force they represented. But at the time that Moses is born, Pharaoh has enacted another law, and that is that he has said that every Jewish baby boy that's born should be thrown into the Nile and drowned. So Moses is born into slavery and really under a death sentence. But his parents hid Moses for three months until, you know, if you've had a little one, you know this, until it became impossible to keep him quiet. And so they constructed a basket made of reeds and placed this basket in the Nile River near where the women of Pharaoh's court would bathe. And the hope was, the thought was that Maybe the Egyptian women might have more mercy on this little three-month-old than the soldiers of Pharaoh's army, and they were right. Pharaoh's daughter saw the basket near where she was bathing, and her heart went out to the child, to Moses. And she took him and raised Moses as her own son. And in that moment, Moses personally was rescued from slavery. Not just rescued from slavery, he was elevated to become a member of Pharaoh's court with all of the privileges that were represented by that. But the rescue story doesn't end there with Moses' personal rescue. That's just the opening chapter in the rescue. And the reason is because God's plan was to rescue more than just Moses out of slavery. So one day after Moses had grown up, now 40 years later, Moses uh, observes his people struggling under slave labor. And he sees a master, an Egyptian master, begin to beat and whip one of the slaves. We don't know why. And at that moment, we don't know if he's seen this scene many times or if this is the first time in a long time he'd been kind of in Pharaoh's court and hadn't really gone out much. We don't know. But at this moment, Moses can no longer stand by and watch. And 
And in the attempt to rescue the slave from this beating, he ends up killing the Egyptian who was beating the slave. And in that instant, his life changed again. Now, you have to understand, Moses had had it made personally. Not only was he free, but he'd been born now into being a prince of Egypt. He could have lived his life out in comfort and personal affluence and power. The New Testament describes the decision that Moses made on that day this way. Here's what it says in Hebrews 11, 24 through 25. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Now, we all struggle with God when our circumstances are tough. And that's because we are expecting God to rescue us personally from the difficult circumstances that we face. But we have to understand that God is working on a rescue that is bigger than just our comfort. This is what Moses had to come to. It's like, if, if, if it was just about me and my comfort, I'm rescued. I'm fine. But God's rescue plan is always much larger than just our own personal comfort. And if we think that that's all that's involved we're going to be very disappointed with this life and with God. God's plan is to rescue an entire people, the people of God. And like Moses, now some 3,200 years later, we face the same kind of decision that Moses did. Is it enough for us to be free, or are we willing to sacrifice our personal comfort so that others can be free as well? Many of us in this room know the freedom that this story points to. And I'm going to get to this eventually, but you already know what this story points to. The rescue, not just of bondage from Egypt, but bondage from sin. A rescue led not by Moses, but by Christ. And many of you in this room have tasted the benefits of that freedom. And the question now is this, is this life now just about you, just about us and our freedom? Or is it about helping to add more people to the ranks of those who are free from the guilt and devastation of sin? And like Moses, it's often going to come down to moments of decision. Will we in this moment just stay silent? Or will we open our mouth and identify with the people of God? Now, if we do, the reason we're hesitant, because we realize that if we do, it's probably going to come with some mistreatment. Now, probably not the level of mistreatment that Moses risked. We live in a culture right now where we probably don't risk death. We probably don't risk imprisonment if we identify with the people of God. Many people throughout the world risk this. Many people throughout history have risked this. Right now, we don't. What we usually risk is ridicule, maybe, or misunderstanding. And oftentimes, we just remain silent because we don't want to be misunderstood. We don't want to be ridiculed. We don't want to be seen that way. Well, Moses had to flee for his life because of his decision to identify with the people of God. And for the next 40 years, he herded sheep in the Midianite desert. Now, he had thought that God had chosen him maybe to, to be the one to rescue his people. He realized that he'd been given this privilege so that he might be used to rescue his people. And so he thought maybe by just 
trying to save this one slave, it might spark something that would lead to the rescue of his people, and that had not worked out at all. And so after 40 years of herding sheep in the desert, any thought of Moses' power, his personal ability to rescue his people was completely gone. He had no more delusions of grandeur that he was able to save anybody. He'd been a shepherd now for 40 years. And then God, after 40 years, appears to him in a burning bush and says to Moses, basically, okay, now is the time. I want you to go back and lead your people out of slavery. Why now? Why, why after all of that in the desert? You see, God's rescue is not only bigger than our comfort, the second thing it's bigger than is it's bigger than our ability. We can't rescue anybody. Moses had to get this clear before God could really use him to be a part of his rescue plan. So how did Moses respond when God in the burning bush said, now, now is the time. I want you to lead these people out of slavery. Well, the very next, well, the verse says in Exodus 3, verse 11, it says, but Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Exactly. I mean, this, this is where he's at now. It's like, who, who am I? I tried that 40 years ago. And I found out I'm nobody. I may be the son of Pharaoh's daughter, but that's not going to affect anything. See, this is not 40-year-old Moses brimming with self-confidence. This is 80-year-old Moses now brimming with weakness. But that's not all that has occurred inside of Moses is his understanding of his weakness. He's lived long enough now to see the next thing that God says to him mean something to him. This is what God says in the very next verse in response to Moses saying, who am I? God says in verse 12, and God said, I'll be with you. Now, that's all he said. He didn't say, Moses, here's how it's all going to work out. Here's what's going to happen. Here's, here's the way it's going to occur. He just said, all you need to know is I'll be with you. Moses had seen God come through again and again, and instead of confidence in himself, Moses now has faith which is confidence in God. It's the same today as it was back then. God will often put us in a desert so that our confidence in ourselves can be replaced by our confidence in Him. God wants to use me and He wants to use you to be a part of His larger rescue effort. But if you think you can do it, and if I think I can do it in our own power, then we don't understand the plan. So oftentimes things get challenging for us so that our own personal confidence can be replaced by our confidence in God. That's what happened with Moses. You see, we tend to think of God rescuing us in individual categories. Rescue me, God, from my trouble. Forgive me for my sin. Help me with my problems. And God is interested in all of that, but God is thinking much larger than me and my. God is thinking of a people. He's rescuing a people, not just individuals. And he invites us to be a part of it. So if you and I are stuck in only thinking about how God's going to rescue me personally, then we will often find ourselves angry and upset and disappointed with God. Because like Moses, God says, I, I, I want to rescue more than just you. This is more about more than your comfort and about more than what you can do personally. This is much bigger than you. That's, that's surprising because 
in our culture right now, we're very individualistic, and we, and we only think of God and us, and God rescuing us, and that's a, that's a part of the dynamic, but it's much bigger than that. The second surprise is this. God's rescue is more costly than we imagine. It's more costly than we would ever imagine. So Moses returns to Egypt and informs Pharaoh that the one true God has appeared to him in the desert in a form of a burning bush and is commanding Pharaoh to let the people of God go. Now, not surprisingly, Pharaoh refuses. And that then begins a series of ten plagues that are brought on the Egyptian nation. And each plague is a specific display of God's power over the gods of Egypt. For example, the the Egyptians worshipped the Nile. They they weren't just grateful for the Nile and the the water and therefore the the life-giving crops that it it grew. No, they they worshipped the Nile as a god. And so one of the plagues, plagues, God turned the Nile to blood. And everything in the Nile died. And it was a statement that I'm more powerful than the Nile. Another thing they worshipped was the sun. So one, one of the plagues, God turned day, noonday, into darkness of night, even darker than night. No stars, no moon, just complete blackness. And God was saying, I run the lights around here. You're worshiping the sun? I created the sun. Every single plague was a statement, a power statement against the various gods of Egypt. But the final plague was the most costly of all. It took the lives of the firstborn sons of Egypt. Now, finally, at this point, Pharaoh had feigned letting people, the people go, but now, finally, he, he's done. And he lets things go far enough where they actually pack up and people give them all kinds of food and gold just to get out of here, and they leave free. Now, this, this is shocking, this 10th plague. I mean, couldn't a rescue have been achieved without the death of the firstborn sons of Egypt? Well, at one part, you could say, well, up to that point, nothing else had convinced Pharaoh. This worked. But the point of this story is not just what would it take to free Israelite slaves from the grip of Pharaoh, but what would it take to free all of humanity from sin? This story is a template of the larger rescue. And so on the evening of this final plague, God instructed his people to kill a lamb and to take the blood of that lamb and spread it over the doors of their houses. That scene is depicted on your program, and you can see on the sides of the screens here. That's this image, the blood of of a lamb over the doors of their homes. And when the angel, the death angel, came that night, the houses that had the blood of of a lamb over the doors were spared. Their firstborn sons were spared. The death angel would pass over that house. And that's why the Jewish people to this day still celebrate Passover, when the death angel passed over those houses. But the question is, what does this event have to do with us today? It is, as I said, the template of the kind of rescue that we need and that God is doing now. It's described this way in 1 Peter 1, 18 through 19. It says, For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed 
from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. It's pointing back to this story. What does this mean? We, we tend to think of sin primarily as a moral mistake, a, a kind of a moral oops, that we think because it's a moral mistake that we made that it can be fixed by saying something like, I'm sorry, and by God saying something like, it's okay, and then we go on because after all, we're only human. But every sin is, is much more than just that. Every sin is a moral transaction. A transaction is something whereby you take something you have and you trade it for something else. And the exchange is a transaction. And it's an exchange. Every sin is a moral transaction, an exchange whereby you trade, and I trade our lives, my life, for two items that cannot be returned cannot be said, oh, that's not, a ba- that's not a good trade. Here, let me take it back. The reason is that we can't return what we've exchanged with our decision to sin is because time is a non-refundable purchase. You know, this last week, I bought something at an auto parts store. Tried it, didn't work, took it back, got my money back. You know, there, there was a return. I could just say, yeah, it didn't work. They said, okay, here's your money back. But I can't do that with time. I can't go anywhere and say to anyone, you know, last Monday, I really messed up. Could I have that back? Could I exchange, you know, and and kind of have a do-over on Monday? No, it's not the way time works. It's non-refundable. And as we move through our Mondays and Tuesdays and Wednesdays and months and years, we are continually exchanging the life that we've been given, the time that we have for two things that we can't return. The first is this. Sin exchanges our life for slavery. Every sin is a decision to be enslaved. John 8, 34 says it this way. I tell you the truth. This is the words of Jesus. Everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Why is that? Why can't we just sin and say, all right, that was fun. I'm done. Why is it that it begins to take a hold of us and it begins to kind of control us and, and, and we want to do more of it in increasing measure. Why can't we just sin and then move on? Why does it enslave us? What's the reason is that sin is an act of, of obedience to God's enemy. We don't think of this. We think it's just our own idea. We think that when we sin, we're just deciding to do whatever we want to do and we may or may not know how wrong it is. But what we're really doing at that moment is we are deciding to bow down and follow Satan. That's what we're doing. We don't realize this, but that's the transaction that's going on. You see, because sin is his idea. Oh, I know it popped into your head, but trust me, you had help. The thought wasn't just yours. There's ideas that he's authoring. He's authored every sin. And so whenever we sin, what we're really saying is, that's a great idea. Okay, I'll do that. And in exchange for our obedience to what he wants us to do, he then becomes our master. That's the way the transaction works. 
Now, you don't, you don't have to believe this. You can experience it for yourself. But this is why sin owns us. This is why we can't just be neutral about it. We got to do more and more of it, and it begins to take over our lives. So sin exchanges our life for slavery. The second transaction that occurs is sin exchanges our life for death. Romans 6.23 describes it this way, for the wages of sin is death. You know, wage is a transaction. You know, you, you work somewhere, and they, you exchange your time on the job for money. You are owed wages. And whenever we sin, we exchange that time for death. That's the paycheck. The reason is because sin is an act of defiance against God. Not only is it an act of obedience to God's enemy, but it's an act of defiance and separation from God. Now, when we cut off human relationships, you know, that's sad. You know, you, we've probably all experienced a, bro- a broken human relationship, and it can be sad and painful, but it's not deadly. But God is not just another person. And to break relationship with him is not, it's, it's sad, yes, but it's much more than that. And that's because our very existence depends on God. So to sin is to separate yourself from or isolate yourself from the one who, who gave you that last breath you just took and ke- is keeping your heart beating right now. And that's a deadly thing to do. You know, it's kind of like if you decided to jump off the end of the pier with a weight attached to your ankle. At one point, you could say, I've just chosen to jump off the end of the pier with a weight attached to my ankle, and that would be true. But attached to that decision would be what? You have chosen to kill yourself. Why? Because you can't live on the bottom of the ocean floor. You require air to live. You can't breathe underwater. And you can stay alive as long as there is air in your lungs, but as soon as that air is gone, two minutes, three minutes, your life is gone. And this is our situation now. You see, our life in Scripture is referred to as as kind of a breath. It's just a short breath compared to all of eternity. And if, if we are not rescued before we run out of years, breath, Our decision to sin and choose death will become permanent. It will become eternal. So what this means is we are now slaves on eternal death row. And slaves can't just say, I'm done being a slave. I don't want to be a slave anymore and have it happen. There has to be a transaction. People on death row can't just say, I'm sorry, really, I'm sorry, and be released. There has to be a transaction. We have all exchanged our past for a future that we can't return. Our only hope is this word that's used in this verse. We need to be redeemed from our past. Redeem means to buy back. To buy is to exchange one thing for another. It's another form of exchange. To buy back means to re- it refers to something in the past. So to redeem means to exchange what I've done in the past for something new. Well, how can we be redeemed? Well, as it says in this verse, the only commodity that can do this is the precious blood of Christ. Why? If you've been around churches for a while, you've heard a lot about the blood of Christ. 
And you may or may not understand, well, what in the world does that have to do with me now 2,000 years after Jesus died on a cross? I mean, you may be aware of the fact that if you donate blood to the Red Cross, that blood, your blood, can help save a life. But it certainly can't free a slave of sin, and it certainly can't rescue someone from eternal death. What, what is it about the blood of Christ that makes his life, his blood, a valid means of exchange for our freedom and for our life? Well, it's because the blood of Christ meets three requirements that are necessary to exchange for sin. These are the only three requirements that make it possible for something to be exchanged for sin. Requirement number one is it has to be another life in exchange for your life. As it says in this verse, not with perishable things such as silver or gold. Now, you can't take any amount of money and say, you know what, I'd I'd like to buy my freedom from, from Satan. I'd like to buy my life back from eternal death. There's no amount of money, there's no price tag that can be conjured to make that exchange. And the reason is because that's a visible means of exchange. Money is a visible means of exchange. You exchange money for a loaf of bread. Both are visible. But the problem we're talking about here is not visible. It's a spiritual problem. It's a problem between us and God. And so you can't take something visible like money and exchange it for something invisible. You know, this is why we say money can't buy love. They're in two completely different categories. You know, love is in the invisible realm. It's a matter of the heart. You can't take something visible like money and use it to buy somebody's heart. That's invisible. Now, no amount of money will help this problem for another reason, and that is because our problem with God is eternal, because we are eternal and God is eternal. The nature of the break-in relationship is an eternal one, not just a temporary one. And money is temporary. Money's not eternal. You're going to only need it for as long as you're alive. After that, it's going to be worthless to you. We need a means of exchange that is both invisible and eternal. Well, what on earth meets both those requirements? Well, you do. I do. We are both invisible and eternal. The blood that is coursing through our veins is sustaining a life that was created in God's image. And therefore, it's both invisible and eternal. The only thing, that's why the only thing that can possibly come close to the value of a human life is another human life. Nothing else can even approach the value of a human life. But even if someone is willing to give their life in exchange for your life, it wouldn't be enough to redeem you from sin. Why? Because every one of us is tainted by sin. And that brings us to the second requirement of exchange. It has to be a perfect life. And that's where, oops, we're in trouble. It says here, it has to be the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. You know, the death penalty is the highest price that we demand for the taking of a human life, but even that never really satisfies justice, does it? And that's because guilty blood can never be substituted for innocent blood. And that's why none of us could ever give our life in exchange for anyone else. Because the blood that's coursing through our veins is tainted by 
something invisible, and that is our sin. So we need to be redeemed. So we don't have the power to redeem anyone else because we're in the same predicament. We need our past slavery exchanged for freedom. We need our past sin and death exchanged for life. So only a perfect, sinless life can be given in exchange. Well, who could ever make that trade? As it says, the precious blood of Christ. Why? He was a lamb without blemish or defect. Jesus is called the Lamb of God because he is what this story is pointing to. He is the innocent and perfect life given in exchange for our guilty and imperfect lives. Now, until Jesus, there never really was even a drop of perfect, sinless human blood. Some lives carry more sin than others, but no one ever made the claim to be without blemish or defect until Jesus. But you know, even that is not enough to redeem us. Why? Because of requirement number three, it has to be a divine life. The very next verse, 1 Peter 1, verse 20, after it talks about the precious blood of Christ, the lamb without blemish or defect, says this, He, speaking of Christ, was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in the last times for your sake. What is this saying? This is saying Jesus wasn't just a man. He was that. That's when you saw him. 2,000 years ago, people could see him. But he existed before creation. What this is saying is he is God. His blood is not just human blood, it's divine blood. You see, the biggest payment that any person can make is one life. If I or you were able to live a perfect, sinless life like Jesus did, the best that you could do is exchange that life for one other life. The five quarts of blood flowing through my veins is all I've got. Once it's spilled, there's, there's nothing more I can offer. So even if, I, as I said, even if we were perfect and without sin, our life could only be exchanged for one other life. But the blood that was coursing through the veins of Jesus was not only human and perfect, it was divine. His five quarts given for us has no limit to its exchangeability because he wasn't just a man. He was God. And that makes the blood of Jesus the only substance that can exchange our past for a new future. Now, we apply his blood to our lives not by putting the blood of a lamb over the doors of our house. That was an image pointing to this. But the image is right. The blood of Christ is applied to our lives when we put ourselves under the authority of Jesus Christ. In every corner of our life, we work now to follow him. Only then, only then, will eternal death pass over us when the years run out of our life. So I have two questions. Have you made this trade? People are making trades for sin. 
but none of them are valid. Most people are trying to trade doing good deeds for their past sin. The problem is, with one hand, they're doing a good deed, and with hand number two, they're still sinning over here. It's not a recognized transaction. It's not a transaction that's available to us. This is the only trade we can make. This is it. We decide whether we will make this trade or whether we will ignore it. Have you made this trade, the sinless life of Christ in exchange for your sinful life? And the second question is, are you an active part of God's great rescue story? I mean, if you have made this trade, you're now on the team. You're now part of the rescue. And if you thought that God rescued you so that you could live a comfortable, amazingly great life, you've missed the point of the epic story. The point of the epic story is a rescue. And God invites you to be a part of it. Not just be rescued, but to be a part of rescuing. 